Hey, Drunk Mythology friends, I'm Kate. And I'm Other Jen. And I'm Kim. And we're the Drunk, Drunk Dracula, Dracula Gals. Gals. Ooh. <laughs> okay, that was tricky. Yeah. I, yeah. <sighs> yeah, again, when we started off in sync and that was scary. Yeah. So. And it's again with Kim being the wild card. Mm, there that's is my job. Just no predictability there. None. Yep. You don't know my life. <laughs> no predictability. Unlike chapter 20 of Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? uh, which we're doing because it's October, which is Drunk Dracula Gals Month. And it's also drunk. Uh, yeah. I just, I just need my rescue inhaler. Yeah. yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So on the whole Drunk Tober theme. So after yesterday's chapter, I went down the internet rabbit hole because I was curious about this burnt rum punch that got right. mentioned. Right. So right. it looks like, and, and this is, I didn't go deep in the rabbit hole. So take this with a grain of salt, but it looks like it's probably a variation on a traditional German drink. And I'm going to attempt to pronounce it. For you, Zambula. Your accent is super sexy. <laughs> I'm going with it. <laughs> I apologize to anyone I offended with my horrible attempt there. But anyway, the literal translation of that word into English is fire tongs punch because it used to be holding a block of sugar with tongs that you would soak in rum and light on fire and it would drip and caramelize down into a bowl of mulled wine underneath. That's actually kind of delicious. Did right? someone say fire? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> These days you can buy a whole kit so you're not having to hold tongs over a, you know, open flame kind of stuff. It's they have what? convenience modernized. Well, what's the fun it. in that? Yeah, right. Uh, well, you, there's still fire. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, so it's now part of traditional Christmas and New Year's celebrations, apparently. And, and Arthur's father invented it, so maybe that's where his family got their money. Well, I think what at the in the the book, so Renfield mentions that it, uh, Arthur's father had a recipe for this. I don't remember the exact wording, but I mean, you're going to have a lot of variations on the mold wine, I presume. So he had a recipe that was popular at the Derby days. And when you go into that context of Renfield mentioning Arthur's father, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Renfield and Arthur's father are probably the same age, which means Renfield's an old guy. Or at least, and he's, he's probably very posh, upper class British because he was friends with him. Right, right. Yeah. He wouldn't have been hanging out drinking with him if he was a scullery maid or something. Right. right. And so, just that having that moment of, oh wait, Renfield is at least a generation older than the Scooby Gang, except for like, Van Helsing. Right, except for him. Like this is not cool with what I know is coming up. It's also really sad the way Renfield's friends and families just abandoned him. Right. I mean, he has no he has nothing. Except money, apparently. To, to be in like the upper class sanitarium. Yeah. Right. 
it's yeah. it's private. It's not, yeah. uh, you know, it's not. It's a, not bedlam, right? And, and you know what? I I know that he's now upper class aristocracy, but I am sticking with my artistic interpretation of him. Oh, absolutely. Oh, don't change a thing, right? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, well. I, I now know what I'm going to add to my winter solstice celebration this year. Sure. I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. And we'll talk more about that after we're done with Dracula. But in the meantime, <laughs> let's head back to England. Okay. Chapter 19 made me mad. Did it make you mad? Oh, my God. Oh, I was so beside myself. Yeah, yeah. because... You want rage? You got rage because this chapter set all of us off. Why? Let me count, haha, the ways. Mm -hmm. It starts with Van Helsing going full metal Boy Scout and arming them all like MacGyver went on a spree at Big Lots. Also, the Count's <laughs> interior designer was going for the latest in nouveau morgue minimalism because why have 50 boxes of dirt when all you need is 29? Totally Conmari approved. Maybe it was to make room for the rats. And yes, Lord Saltingcracker called his terriers to deal with them, but the fussy way they were all like, nah, don't want to step on Icky. We all know that they were really Basenjis. But really, the are you fucking kidding me icing on the hey, watch your blood pressure cake <laughs> is the way everyone is so goddamn self-congratulatory about leaving Mina out of it when we know what happens when you leave the women in this story alone. <laughs> Clearly nobody bothered to read all the notes, which is also why I do the recaps. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> Off we go. Jonathan Harker's journal. 1 October. Evening. I found Thomas Snelling in his house at Bethnal Green, but unhappily he was not in a condition to remember anything. The very prospect of beer which my expected coming had opened to him had proved too much, and he had begun too early on his expected debauch. Pre-gaming. <laughs> right. I learned, however, from his wife, who seemed a decent poor soul, that he was only the assistant to Smollett, who, of the two mates, was the responsible person. So off I drove to Walworth and found Mr. Joseph Smollett at home and in his shirt sleeves, taking a late tea out of a saucer. Does that really mean he's like drinking tea from a saucer? Yes, and that, that was actually an acceptable practice. Gross. Fascinating. Okay. He is a decent, intelligent fellow, distinctly a good, reliable type of workman, and with a headpiece of his own. I don't know what that means, a headpiece. I don't either, and I don't want to. Good head okay. on his shoulders. Let's go with that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he remembered all about the incident of the boxes, and from a wonderful dog's-eared notebook, which he produced from some mysterious receptacle about the seat of his trousers, <laughs> and which had, dude's got a fanny pack, and which had hieroglyphic. <laughs> hieroglyphical entries in thick, half-obliterated pencil, he gave me the destinations of the boxes. There were, he said, six in the cartload, which he took from Carfax and left at 197 Chicksand Street, Mile End, Newtown, and another six, which he deposited at Jamaica Lane, Bermondsey. Hope I'm saying those correctly. If the count, if then the count meant to scatter these ghastly refuges of his over London, these places were chosen as the first of delivery so that later he might distribute more fully. The systematic manner in which this was done made me think that he could not mean to confine himself to two sides of London. 
He was now fixed on the far east of the northern shore, on the east of the southern shore, and on the south. I love this. Oh, <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> the north and west were surely never meant to be left out of his diabolical scheme, let alone the city itself and the very heart of fashionable London in the southwest and west. I went back to Smollett and asked him if he could tell us if any other boxes had been taken from Carfax. He replied, Well, Governor, you've treated me very inansome. I had given him half a sovereign. And I'll tell you all I know. I heard a man by the name of Bloxham say four nights ago in the Aaron Owns in Pincher's Alley as how he and his mate had had a rare dusty job. Every job is dusty in these days. In an old house at Perfect. There ain't many of such jobs as this year, and I thinkin' maybe Sam Bloxham could tell you some of it. I asked if he could tell me where to find him. I told him that if he could get me the address, it would be worth another half-sovereign to him. So he gulped down the rest of his tea and stood up, saying that he was going to begin the search then and there. At the door, he stopped and said, Look here, Governor, there ain't no sense in me keeping you here. I may find I may find Sam soon, or I mayn't. But anyhow, he ain't like to be in a way to tell you much tonight. Sam is a rare one when he starts on the booze. You can give me an envelope with a stamp on it and put your address on it. I'll find out where Sam is to be found and post it to you tonight. But you'd better be up after him soon in the morning or maybe you won't catch him. For Sam gets off main early, never mind the booze a night before. This was all practical, if you could understand a word he said. So one of the children went <laughs> off with a penny to buy an envelope and a sheet of paper and to keep the change. Holy crap. The Jesus. Damn. Talk about inflation. When she came back, I addressed the envelope and stamped it. And when Smollett had again fully faithfully promised to post the address when found, I took my way to home. We're on the track anyhow. I am tired tonight and want to sleep. Mina is fast asleep and looks a little too pale. Yeah, thank think. Her eyes look as though she had been crying Poor dear, I've no doubt it frets her to be kept in the dark, and it may make her doubly anxious about me and the others. But it is best as it is. No, it is, it is better it is definitely to be, not. Better to be disappointed and worried in such a way now than to have her nerve broken. The doctors were quite right to insist on her being kept out of this dreadful business. I must be firm, for on me this particular burden of silence must rest. I shall not ever enter on the subject with her under any circumstances. Oh, yeah, Indeed. that's good coming from Harker, <laughs> right? <laughs> Indeed, it may not be a hard task after all, for she herself has become reticent on the subject and has not spoken of the Count or his doings ever since we told her of our decision. 2 October. Evening. A long and trying and exciting day. Uh, By, define exciting, Jonathan. Right. <laughs> oh, I think we're about to. <laughs> By the first post, I got my directed envelope with a dirty scrap of paper enclosed, on which was written with a carpenter's pencil in a sprawling hand. Sam Bloxham, Cochrane's, Four Porters Court, Bartle Street, Walworth, ask for the deputy. I got the letter in bed and rose without waking Mina. She looked heavy and sleepy and pale and far from well. I determined not to wake her, but that when I should return from this new search, I would arrange for her going back to Exeter. 
I think she would be happier in our own home with her daily tasks to interest her than in being here amongst us and in ignorance. I only saw Dr. Seward for a moment and told him where I was off to, promising to come back and tell the rest so soon as I should have found out anything. I drove to Walworth and found with some difficulty Potter's Court. Mr. Smollett's spelling misled me as I asked for... Whatever. As I asked for Potter's Court instead of Potter's Court. However, when I had found the court, I had no difficulty in discovering Corcoran's lodging house. When I asked the man who came to the door for the depite... Deputy. Well, we know that. Yeah. But we got to go with phonetics. You're ruining the story. Oh, whatever. He shook his head and said... I don't know him. There ain't no such person here. I never heard of him in all my blooming days. Don't believe there ain't nobody of that kind living here or anywheres. I took out Smollett's letter, and as I read it, it seemed to me that the lesson of the spelling of the name of the court might guide me. What are you? I asked. I'm the deputy. I saw at once that I was on the right track. Phonetic spelling had misled me again. A half crown <laughs> tip put the deputy's knowledge at my disposal, and I learned that Mr. Bloxham, who had slept off the remains of his beer on the previous night at Corcoran's, had left for work at Poplar at five o'clock that morning. He could not tell me where the place of work was situated, but he had a vague idea that it was some kind of a newfangled warehouse. And with this slender clue, I had to start for Poplar. It was 12 o'clock before I got any satisfactory hint of such a building, and this I got at a coffee shop where some workmen were having their dinner. One of these suggested that there was being created, erected at Cross Angel Street, a new cold storage building. And as this suited the condition of a newfangled warehouse, I at once drove to it. <laughs> An interview with a surly gatekeeper and a surlier foreman, both of whom were appeased with the coin of the realm, put me on the track of Bloxham. Cha-ching! <laughs> he was sent for on my suggesting that I was willing to pay his day's wages to his foreman for the privilege of asking him a few questions on a private matter. He was smart enough fellow, though rough of speech and bearing, when I had promised to pay for his information and give him an earnest, he told me that he had made two journeys between Carfax and a house in Piccadilly, and had taken from this house to the latter nine great boxes, main heavy ones, with a horse and cart hired by him for this purpose. I asked him if he could tell me the number of the house in Piccadilly, to which he replied, well, Governor, I forget the number, but I think it was only a few doors from a big white church or something of the kind, not long built. It was a dusty old house, too, though not into the dustiness of the house we took the blooming boxes from. How did you get into the houses if they were both empty? Ah, oh, there was the old party what engaged me a waiting at the house at Purfley. He helped me to lift the boxes and put them in the dray. Curse me, but he was the strongest chap I ever struck, and him an old fella with a white moustache, one that thin you'd think wouldn't be able to throw a shatter. How this phrase thrilled through me. Why, he took up his end of the boxes like they was pounds of tea, and me a puffin' and a blowin' afore I could upend mine anyhow, and I ain't no chicken neither. How did you get into the house in Piccadilly? I asked. Oh, 
He was there too. He must have started off and got there for me, for when I rung the bell, he came and opened the door itself and helped me to carry the boxes into the hall. The whole nine, I asked? Yes, there was five in the first load and four in the second. It was main dry work and I don't w- so well remember how I got home. Ha <laughs> <laughs> inter- ha. Oh, who of us haven't been there? <laughs> I interrupted him. Were the boxes left in the hall? Yes, it was a big hole and there was nothing else in it. I made one more attempt to further matters. You didn't have any key? Never used no key nor nothing. The old gent, he opened the door himself and shut it again when I drove off. I don't remember the last time, but that was a beer. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel seen and triggered. Yep. Yeah. And you can't remember the number of the house? No, sir, but you needn't have no difficulty about that. It's an iron with a stone front with a bow on it, and I steps up to the door. I know them steps haven't had to carry the boxes up with three loafers what come round to earn a copper. The old gent gives them shillings, and seeing as they got so much, they wanted more. But he took one of them by the shoulder and was like to throw him down the steps till the lot of them went away cussing. Oh, my word. I thought that with this description I could find the house. So, having paid my friend for his information, I started off for Piccadilly. I had gained a new painful experience. The Count could, it was evident, handle the earth boxes himself. If so, time was precious. For now that he had achieved a certain amount of distribution, he could, by choosing his own time, complete the task unobserved. At Piccadilly Circus, I discharged my cab and walked westward. Beyond the junior constitutional, I came across the house described and was satisfied that this was the next of the lairs arranged by Dracula. The house looked as though it had been long untented. Ten, 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 long empty. Empty. I'm going (laughs) to go with it. Go empty. (laughs) The windows were encrusted with dust and the shutters were up. All the framework was black with time and from the iron, the paint had mostly scaled away. Stroker is obsessed with dust. Yeah. It was evident that up to lately, there had been a large notice board in front of the balcony. It had, however, been roughly torn away, the uprights which had supported it still remaining. Behind the rails of the balcony, I saw there were some loose boards whose raw edges looked white. I could have given a good deal to have been able to see the notice board intact, as it would perhaps have given some clue to the ownership of the house. I remembered my experience of the investigation and purchase of Carfax. I could not but feel that if I could find the former owner, there might be some means discovered of gaining access to the house. There was at present nothing to be learned from the Piccadilly side, and nothing could be done. So I went round to the back to see if anything could be gathered from this quarter. The mews were active, the Piccadilly houses being mostly in occupation. I asked one or two of the grooms and helpers whom I saw around if they could tell me anything about the empty house. One of them said that he had heard it had lately been taken, but he couldn't say from whom. He told me, however, that up to very lately there had been a notice board of for sale up and that perhaps Mitchell, Sons, and Candy, the house agents, could tell me something, as he thought he remembered seeing the name of that firm on the board. He's such a Ravenclaw. (laughs) (laughs) I'm stuck on the name Candy. Yeah. (laughs) I did not wish to seem too eager or to let my informant know or guess too much, so thanking him in the usual manner, I strolled away. Cha-ching! Yeah, that's, that's how I'm interpreting it. 
It was now growing dusk, and the autumn night was closing in, so I did not lose any time. Having learned the address of Mitchell's Sons and Candy from a directory at the Berkeley, I was soon at their office in Sackville Street. The gentleman who saw me was particularly suave in manner, but uncommunicative in equal proportion. Having once told me that the Piccadilly house, which throughout our interview he called a mansion, was sold, he considered my business as concluded. When I asked who had purchased it, he opened his eyes a thought wider and paused a few seconds before replying, It is sold, sir. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Pardon me, I said with equal politeness, but I have a special reason for wishing to know who purchased it. Again. He paused longer and raised his eyebrows still more. It is sold, sir. Another (laughs) laconic reply. Surely, I said, you do not mind letting me know so much. But I do mind. The affairs of their clients are absolutely safe in the hands of Mitchell, Sons, and Candy. This was manifestly a prig of the first water. (laughs) Damn. I need to look that one up. Somebody, Uh, yeah, be careful of that. (laughs) Somebody live Google that one. And there was no use arguing with him. I thought I had best meet him on his own ground. So I said, your clients, sir, are happy in having so resolute a guardian of their confidence. I am myself a professional man. Here, I handed him my card. In this instance, I am not prompted by curiosity. I act on the part of Lord Godalming, who wishes to know something of the property which was, he understood, lately for sale. These words put a different complexion on affairs, as he responded. I would like to oblige you if I could, Mr. Harker, and especially would I like to oblige his lordship. We once carried out a small matter of renting some chambers for him while he was the Honorable Arthur Holmwood. If you'll let me have his lordship's address, I will consult the house on the subject and will, in any case, communicate with his lordship by tonight's post. It will be a pleasure if we can so far deviate from our rules as to give the required information to his lordship. I wanted to secure a friend and not to make an enemy, so I thanked him. Ka-ching, yeah. gave the address at Dr. Seward's and came away. It was now dark and I was tired and hungry. I got a cup of tea at the Aerated Bread Company. And what? Came- that is the greatest name. <laughs> I'm like, what real? Aerated bread? <laughs> As opposed to what? <laughs> Anaerobic bread? <laughs> came down to Purfleet by the next train. I found all the others at home. Mina was looking tired and pale. Oh my God. But she made a gallant effort to be bright and cheerful. It wrung my heart to think that I had had to keep anything from her and so caused her inquietude. Thank God this will be the last night of her looking on at our conferences and feeling the sting of our not showing our confidence. Okay. It'll it be took- the last night of something. That's right. Right. right? Last <laughs> night of Num Num Land for Jonathan. It took all my. Oh my God, you said that. <laughs> I did. <laughs> it took all my courage to hold to the wise resolution of keeping her out of our grim task. She seems somehow more reconciled, or else the very subject seems to have become repugnant to her, for when any accidental illusion is made, she actually shudders. Get a hint, guys. 
I am glad we made our resolution in time, as with such a feeling as this, our growing knowledge would be torture to her. Or not. Who knows? I guess you'll never know. We'll never know. (laughs) I could not tell the others of the day's discovery till we were alone. So after dinner, followed by a little music to save appearances even amongst ourselves, Why? I took Mina Mina to her room and left her to go to bed. The dear girl was more affectionate with me than ever and clung to me as though she would detain me. (laughs) But there was much to be talked of and I came away. Thank God the ceasing of telling things has made no difference between us. Sure, Jan. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Whatever when, I came, when I came down again, I found the others all gathered round the fire in the study. In the train, I had written my diary so far and simply read it off to them as the best means of letting them get abreast of my own information. When I had finished, Van Helsing said, This has been a great day's work, friend Jonathan, and not at all boring in any way. <laughs> That's for sure. Doubtless, we are on the track of the missing boxes because that is extremely important. If we find them all in that house, then our work is near the end. But if there be some missing, we must search until we find them. Then we shall make our final coup and hunt this wretch to real death. We all sat silent a while, and all at once, Mr. Morris spoke up. Say, how are we going to get into that house? Lord Godalming quickly answered. We got into the other. (laughs) But Art, this is different. We broke the house at Carfax, but we had night and a wall park to protect us. It'll be a mighty different thing to commit burglary in Piccadilly, either by day or night. I confess, I don't see how we're going to get in unless the agency duck can find us a key of some sort. Perhaps we shall know when you get his letter in the morning. Lord Godalming's brow contracted and he stood up and walked about the room. By and by, he stopped and said, turning from one to another of us, Quincy's head is level. This burglary business is getting serious. Once we got off all right, but now we have a rare job on our hand, unless we can find the Count's key basket. As nothing could well be done. (laughs) code for something? (laughs) I mean, it took him that long and a walk around the room to figure out that Quincy was like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't like commit burglary in broad daylight. Broad daylight, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As nothing could well be done before morning, and as it would be at least advisable to wait till Lord Godalming should hear from Mitchells, we decided not to take any active step before breakfast time. For a good while, we sat and smoked, discussing the matter in its various lights and bearings. I took the opportunity of bringing this diary right up to the moment. I am very sleepy and shall go to bed. Just a line. Mina sleeps soundly and her breathing is regular. Her forehead is puckered up into little wrinkles as though she thinks, even in her sleep. Isn't that cute thinking a woman thinks? <laughs> she is That's still adorable. She is still too pale, but does not look so haggard as she did this morning. Tomorrow will, I hope, mend all this. She will be herself at home in Exeter. Oh, but I am sleepy. Well, Jonathan, you were right. That was the most exciting day out ever. (laughs) No question about that. I'm still stuck on the aerated bread. (laughs) Dr. Seward's Diary, 1 October. I'm puzzled afresh about Renfield. His moods change so rapidly that I find it difficult to keep touch of them, and they always mean something more than his own well-being. They form a more than interesting study. 
This morning, when I went off to see him after his repulsive Van Helsing, his manner was that of a man commanding destiny. He was, in fact, commanding destiny, subjectively. He did not really care for any of the things of mere earth. He was in the clouds and looking down on all the weaknesses and wants of us poor mortals. I thought I would improve the occasion and learn something, so I asked him, what about the flies these times? He smiled in a quite a superior sort of way, such a smile as would have become the face of Malvolio. Which play was that from? I don't uh, remember. It's one of Shakespeare's plays. Malvolio was one of the villains. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. As he answered me, the fly, my dear sir, has one striking feature. Its wings are typical of aerial powers of the psychic faculties. The ancients did well when they typified the soul as a butterfly. I thought I would push his analogy to it utmost logically, so I said quickly, Oh, it's a soul you're after now, is it? His madness foiled his reason, and a puzzled look spread over his face as, shaking his head with a decision which I had but seldom seen in him, he said, Oh no, oh, oh no, I want no souls. Life is all I want. Here he brightened up. I am pretty indifferent about it at present. Life is all night. I have all I want. You must get a new patient, doctor, if you wish to study zoophagy. This puzzled me a little, so I drew him on. Then you command life. You're a god, I suppose. He smiled with an ineffably benign superiority. Oh, no. Far be it from me to arrogate to myself the attributes of the deity. I am not even concerned in his especially spiritual doings. If I may state my intellectual position, I am, so far as concerns things purely terrestrial, somewhat in the position which Enoch occupies spiritually. This was a poser to me. I could not at the moment recall Enoch's appositeness. Appositeness. <laughs> sure, whatever. Other, whatever. So I had to ask a simple question, though I felt by doing so I was lowering myself in the eyes of the lunatic. And why with Enoch? Because he walks with God. I did not see the analogy, but I didn't like to admit it. So I harked back to what he had denied. So you don't care about life and you don't want souls. Why not? I put my question quickly and somewhat sternly on purpose to disconcert him. The effort succeeded. For instant, in an instant, he unconsciously relapsed into his old servile manner, bent low before me, and actually fawned upon me as he replied, I don't want any souls. Indeed. Indeed, I don't. I couldn't use them if I had them. They would be no manner of use to me. I couldn't eat them or... He suddenly stopped, and the old cunning look spread over his face like a wind sweep on the surface of the water. And doctor, as to life, what is it after all? When you've got all you require and you know what you will never want, that is all. I have friends, good friends, like you, Dr. Seward. This was said with a leer of inexpressible cunning. I know that I shall never lack the means of life. I think that through the cloudiness of his insanity, he saw some antagonism in me, for he once fell back on the last refuge of such as he, a dogged silence. After a short time, I saw that for the present, it was useless to speak to him. He was sulky, and so I came away. Later mm. in the day, <laughs> you should twirl away and slam the door. Later <laughs> in the day, flights. 
Ordinarily, I would not have come without special reason, but just as present, I am so interested in him that I would gladly make an effort. Besides, I'm glad to have anything to help pass the time. Harker's out following up clues, so are Lord Godalming and Quincy. Van Helsing sits in my study, poring over the records prepared by the Harkers. He seems to think that by accurate knowledge of all details, he'll light upon some clue. He does not wish to be disturbed in the work with cause, without cause. I would have taken him to see my patient, only I thought that after his last repulse, he might not care to go again. There was also another reason. Renfield might not speak so freely before a third person as when he and I were alone. I found him sitting out in the middle of the floor on his stool, a pose which is generally indicative of some mental energy on his part. When I came in, he said at once, as though the question had been waiting on his lips, What about souls? It was evident then that my surmise had been correct. Unconscious cerebration was doing its work, even with the lunatic. I determined to have the matter out. What about them yourself? I asked. He did not reply for a moment, but looked all round, up and down, as though he expected to find some inspiration for an answer. I don't want any souls, he said in a feeble, apologetic way. The matter seemed preying on his mind, and I so determined to use it, to be cruel only to be kind. Oh, that's what you call it? <laughs> That's standard medical practice. (laughs) So I said, you like life and you want life. Oh, yes, but that is all right. You needn't worry about that. But I asked, how are we to get the life without getting the soul also? This seems to puzzle him. Sorry. (laughs) It puzzled me too. This seemed to puzzle him, so I followed it up. A nice time you'll have sometime when you're flying out there with the souls of thousands of flies and spiders and birds and cats buzzing and twittering and meowing all around you. You've got their lives, you know, and you must put up with their souls. Something seemed to affect his imagination, for he put his fingers to his ears and shut his eyes, screwing them up tightly just as a small boy does when his face is being soaked. There was something pathetic in it that touched me. It also gave me a lesson, for it seemed that before me was a child. Only a child, though the features were worn, and the stubble on the jaws was white. So you were correct. He's an older gentleman. It was evident that he was undergoing some process of mental disturbance. And knowing how his past moods had interpreted things seemingly foreign to himself, I thought I'd enter into his mind as well as I could and go with him. The first step was to restore confidence. So I asked him, speaking pretty loud, so he'd hear me through his closed ears, Would you like some sugar to get your flies round again? (laughs) He seemed to wake up all at once and shook his head. With a laugh, he replied, (laughs) Not much. Flies are poor things after all. After a pause, he added, But I don't want their souls buzzing around me all the same. Or spiders, I went on. No spiders. What's the use of spiders? There isn't anything in them to eat or... He stopped suddenly as though reminded of a forbidden topic. So, so, I thought to myself, this is the second time he suddenly stopped at the word drink. What does it mean? What could it possibly fucking mean? Sorry. (laughs) Renfield seemed himself aware of having made a lapse, for he hurried on as though to distract my attention from it. I don't take any stock in all such matters. Rats and mice and such small deer, as Shakespeare has it. Chicken feed of the larder, they might be called. I'm past all sort of nonsense. You might as well ask a man to eat molecules with a pair of chopsticks as to try and interest me about the lesser carnivora when I know of what is before me. I see, I said. You want big things that you can make your teeth meet in. How would you like breakfast on an elephant? Ah, what ridiculous nonsense are you talking? He was getting too wide awake, so I thought I would press him hard. 
I wonder, I said reflectively, what an elephant's soul is like. The effect I desired was obtained, for at once he fell from his high horse and became a child again. I don't want an elephant's soul, or any soul at all. For a few moments he sat despondently. Suddenly he jumped to his feet, with his eyes blazing, and all the signs of intense cerebral excitement. To hell with you and your souls! He was shouting. Why do you plague me about souls? Haven't I got enough to worry and pain and distract me already without thinking of souls? He looked so hostile that I thought he was in for another homicidal fit, so I blew my whistle. Did the dog show up? No. (laughs) The instant, however, that I did, he became calm and said apologetically, Ah, forgive me, doctor. I forgot myself. You do not need any help. I am so worried in my mind that I am apt to be irritable. If only you knew the problem I have to face and that I am working out, you would pity and tolerate and pardon me. Pray do not put me in a straight waistcoat. I want to think, and I cannot think freely when my body is confined. I'm sure you will understand. He had evidently self-control, so when the attendants came, I told them not to mind, and they withdrew. Renfield watched them go. When the door was closed, he said, with considerable dignity and sweetness, Dr. Seward, you have been very considerate towards me. Believe me that I am very, very grateful to you. Oh, you're creeping me out, man. Right? <laughs> I thought it creepy. I thought it well to My leave him in this done. mood. <laughs> and so I came away. There's certainly something to ponder over this man's state. Several points seem to make what American interviewers call a story if one could get them in proper order. Here they are. Will not mention drinking. Fears the thought of being burdened with the soul of anything. Has no dread of wanting life in the future despises the meaner forms of life altogether, though he dreads being haunted by their souls. Logically, all these things point one way. He has assurance of some kind that he will acquire some higher life. He dreads the consequences, the burden of a soul. Then it is a human life he looks to. And the assurance? You ready? You ready? You ready? (laughs) Come on, merciful God, the count has been to him and there's some new scheme of terror afoot. Ding, 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 ding. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I need a drink for my rescue inhaler. No, you can't talk about drinking. Sorry. (laughs) Later, I went round to Van Helsing and told him my suspicion. He grew very grave, and after thinking the matter over for a while, he asked me to take him to Renfield. I did so. As we came to the door, we heard the lunatic within singing gaily, as he used to do do at the time, which now seems so long ago. When we entered, we saw with amazement that he had spread out his sugar as of old. The flies, lethargic with autumn, were beginning to buzz into the room. We tried to make him talk of the subject of our previous conversation conversation, but he would not attend. He went on with the singing, just as though we had not been present. He'd got a scrap of paper and was folding it into a notebook. We had to come away as ignorant as we went in. He is a curious case indeed. We must watch him tonight. Oh, that's a real priority. Right. Right. Ah, letter. Mitchell, Sons, and Candy to Lord Godalming. 1 October. My Lord, We are at all times only too happy to meet your wishes. We beg with regard to the desire of your lordship expressed by Mr. Harker on your behalf to supply the following information concerning the sale and purchase of number 347 Piccadilly. The original vendors are the executors of the late Mr. Archibald Winter Suffield. The purchaser is a foreign nobleman, 
Count DeVille. Ugh. He's just trolling them at this point. Count DeVille. Worst pun ever. Who affected the purchase himself, paying the purchase money in notes over the counter, if your lordship will pardon us using so vulgar an expression. <laughs> really? <laughs> Beyond this, we know nothing whatever of him. We are, my lord, your lordship's humble servants, Mitchell, Sons, and Candy. I imagine actually physically touching money was just not something they, they often did, so it's considered rather low class. Yeah. Yeah, or or even having to, you know what, having to deal with like a mercantile a transaction. A foreigner. <laughs> you know, yeah. but like dealing in actual business was yeah. very much not what the aristocracy did. Right. Dr. Seward's Diary, 2nd October. I placed a man in the corridor last night and told him to make an accurate note of any sounds he might hear from Renfield's room and gave him instructions that if there should be anything strange, he was to call me. After dinner, when we'd all gathered round the fire in the study, Mrs. Harker having gone to bed, we discussed the attempts and discoveries of the day. Harker was the only one who had any result, and we are in great hopes that his clue may be an important one. Before going to bed, I went round to the patient's room and looking in through the observation trap. He was sleeping soundly and his heart rose and fell with regular respiration. It's this not morning, your heart, the- it's your lungs. <laughs> he's, you know, he's not a real doctor. Oh! <laughs> this morning, the man on duty reported to me that a little after midnight, he was restless and kept saying his prayers somewhat loudly. I asked him if that was all. He replied that it was all he heard. There was something about his manner so suspicious that I asked him point blank if he'd been asleep. He denied sleep, but admitted to having dozed for a while. It is too bad that men can't be trusted unless they are watched. Clearly, (laughs) that was the problem. Number one employer. Mm -hmm. Today, Harker is about following up his clue, and Art and Quincy are looking after the horses. Godalming thinks it'll be well to have horses and always in readiness, for when we get the information which we seek, there will be no time to lose. We must sterilize all the imported earth between sunrise and sunset. We shall thus catch the count at his weakest and without a refuge to fly to. Van Helsing is off to the British Museum looking up some authorities on ancient medicine. The old (laughs) physicians took account of things which their followers do not accept, and the professor is searching for witch and demon cures which may be useful to us later. This is the equivalent of Facebook medical advice. (laughs) Right. I sometimes think we must all be mad and that we'll wake up to sanity in straight waistcoats. Uh, <laughs> don't be surprised when that actually happens. Right, not right. Onion, Onion, please don't walk on the keyboard. Thank you, my Aww. darling boy. That's <laughs> my cat for those who may not be able to see what's going on inside my house. Later, we have met again. There seems to be blast on the track and our work of tomorrow be the beginning of the end. I wonder if Renfield's quiet has anything to do with this. His moods have so followed the doings of the Count that the coming destruction of the monster may be carried to him in some subtle way. If we could only get some hint as to what passed in his mind, but between the time of my argument with him today and his resumption of flycatching, it might afford us a valuable clue. He is now seemingly quiet for a spell. Is he... That wild yell seemed to come from his room. The attendant came bursting into my room and told me that Runfield had somehow met with some accident. He'd heard him yell, and when he went to find him, find him lying on his face on the floor, all covered with blood. I must go at once. Oh! Yeah, and that's where we're going to stop for the day, with Renfield and his blood face all over the floor. Wow. Yeah. Oh. But what is aerated bread? 
<laughs> I I will Google that one over the next day or two. I'll find out. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, that's the, my thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Malvolio was in Twelfth Night, and his name means ill will in Italian. Now we know. Wow. Nice. All okay. right. There we go. So what's coming up tomorrow, Kate? Well, all I got for this one is to salute Dracula. Play what? on playa. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. And, oh, and you can't say that Renfield didn't try to warn them. Oh, yeah. poor guy. He did, he did try. Yeah, absolutely. He, yeah. I shall. No. I shall look forward to little else. Yes. <laughs> Don't forget to check us out on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/DrunkMythologyGals. That's right. For the month of October, we have Drunk Dracula Gals tier for one dollar. You get all these Dracula episodes as soon as they're done producing, and you also get access to all of our other Lit Crit Hour episodes. That's right. And thanks again for joining us. Please subscribe, leave a rating or review, and tell your friends and family about us, especially if they're like, you know, I had a really exciting day. I went to four real estate offices and I paid a bunch of people to get some information that was absolutely useless. Finally. (laughs) It was the best day ever. (laughs) (laughs) Always remember, if the undead can behave badly, then so can you. 